welcome to Cyberspectives, which provides insights and analysis on the technology, policy, and legal issues associated with today's most pressing cybersecurity challenges. Today, our guest is Kristen Eikenser, who's a uh, professor at the UCLA School of Law. Uh, and she writes and teaches about cybersecurity, foreign relations, and the separation of powers, and other things. And we're talking to her today, of course, about cybersecurity. Her uh, scholarship has appeared in a number of top law review venues. Prior to joining the UCLA faculty, she clerked for Justices Sandra Day O'Connor and Sonia Sotomayor of the Supreme Court. Uh, and she received her JD from Yale Law School and has a uh, degree in government from Harvard and just a terrific set of experience and affiliations. And we're really grateful that uh, she's decided to join us on the uh, podcast today. So thank you very much, Kristen, for taking a few minutes to be with us. Well, thanks for having me, John. So uh, we'll just get right into it. You've done some really fascinating work in relation to cybersecurity in a, in a global context. And among other things, you've done some really compelling work on extraterritoriality. I was hoping you could talk a little bit about why extraterritoriality is particularly complex in the cyber context. Absolutely. So extraterritoriality is kind of the flip side of territoriality, which is one of the basic principles of jurisdiction or bases of jurisdiction as a matter of international law. So under international law, there are different states have different kinds of jurisdiction, jurisdiction to prescribe, which is basically to legislate, jurisdiction to adjudicate, which is adjudication by courts, and jurisdiction to enforce, which is kind of the executive component of it. And there are different bases for those types of jurisdiction. The most basic of them is territoriality. Basically, a country has authority to regulate things that happen within its territory. There are other bases of jurisdiction as well, personality, they can regulate their nationals, etc. Really, the most basic kind of jurisdiction rests on territoriality. So the challenge with data is determining whether data is in a territory or not in a territory, which sounds like in some ways a basic question. If you talk about physical objects, their physical location is not that hard to determine, but data is different and it's difficult. So the challenge with data is determining whether the jurisdiction being exercised or that the state is trying to exercise is territorial or extraterritorial. And this is where the international law concept hits US domestic law as well. So in US law, there's a what's called a presumption against extraterritoriality. And basically, the presumption against extraterritoriality is a rule that courts apply when they're interpreting U.S. statutes, U.S. laws. And they, the presumption against extraterritoriality says that courts will presume that U.S. laws apply domestically only unless Congress clearly indicates that they are also to apply extraterritorially. So what's territorial and what's extraterritorial has big implications as a matter of both domestic and international law. And this came up most recently uh, to the Supreme Court in the case, the Microsoft Ireland case, which was really fundamentally a question about where data stored in Ireland, was it as a matter of jurisdiction law located in Ireland or was it located in the United States because it could be accessed from the United States. So cyber and, and the, the sort of flow of data across borders challenges this idea of extraterritoriality because it confuses the old tests for determining where something is. The old test, the legal test for determining territoriality, it was pretty simple. Is something inside a state's borders or outside a state's borders? But now when you can have data that's, that's located in multiple countries simultaneously or that moves across borders at the discretion of a private company, often at the discretion of sort of an algorithm run by a private company, so it's not even a sort of conscious decision by a person in a company, but 
this data can move across borders quickly. It can be in multiple places simultaneously. And a single, what we would think of as a single document can be fragmented and stored in different places around the world at the same time. Right. None of these or, things or, were or contemplated. It, or, or part of it could be stored in one country and another part could be stored in another country. And then, then where is it? Right? Exactly. Exactly. So all of these, for all of these reasons, it, it challenges these, this sort of very old international law and domestic law principle of territory matters. With data, territory kind of matters, but not really. Okay, and, and then you know, bringing it specifically to the areas where you think the global policy dialogue on cyber may not be fully accounting for that and falling short, I guess the, the question would be how, uh, other than the obvious that you know, there's the, this challenge of identifying where something is, how is the global policy dialogue on cyber falling short of fully accounting for extraterritoriality and, and what can we do about that? What are the consequences of that? Well, basically every country is going to have to figure out what the answer to this is. And there are a lot of perhaps unintended consequences. So to go back again to the Microsoft Ireland case, what was at issue in that case was U.S. law enforcement um, wanted to access the contents of an email account that were stored in Ireland. And Microsoft said they couldn't because the, the, the legal provision of the Stored Communications Act that the government was using to access the account Microsoft said applied only domestically. It only applied to things stored in the United States. And even though the contents of the email account could be accessed from Redmond, Washington, where Microsoft is headquartered, Microsoft said that's extraterritorial, not territorial. The U.S. doesn't have authority, right? So all countries are going to have to sort of figure out what they think about this. Is it is what matters where the data is stored? Is what matters where it can be accessed? Is it some other principle? Does where it's stored not matter at all? And even if you have an answer for one country, so the United States, uh, the Microsoft Ireland case became moot when Congress passed uh, a statute this spring that clarified that the statute uh, that the government was proceeding under in the Microsoft Ireland case did apply extraterritorially. So there's no longer a problem of U.S. law didn't matter that the data was stored abroad. But the fact that the United States has answered that question, that U.S. companies can now comply with the legal requirements of the Stored Communications Act and provide data to U.S. law enforcement, even if it's stored abroad, doesn't answer the question globally. So every country is going to have to figure out, do they care about the storage location or do they not care about the storage location? And you could have competing demands. So, for example, if you have, if U.S. law enforcement uh, asks for data from a U.S. company and it's stored in a country abroad that doesn't think that the United States has authority to access the data, that can pr present foreign relations problems and, and sort of international conflict. So we do need a global pol policy dialogue on this. We're going to need an international resolution to these questions of what counts as extraterritorial or not extraterritorial, or sort of suspending that question, uh, a new system, a new agreement that will cover when governments can access data and where, where they can access data. Right. And, and it seems like you made this point, which you're, of course, absolutely correct, that every country, you know, needs to, you know, can, can figure this out on their own, but, but then that can lead to conflicts, right? Where, where, you know, country A and country B, you know, come to conclusions that are, that can't both be followed because they would conflict with one another with respect to data stored in one or the other country, right? So, um, right, exactly, and and that, that puts the company is potentially in a very difficult position because they've got two different governments telling them, you know, conflicting conflicting things about what they can do with data that they that they hold. And so it raises me, these very interesting questions. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it, couldn't it also work in the opposite? In other words, so so you mentioned the United States 
you know, having a statute which says that the data stored in these other locations was, you know, fell under the umbrella of the statute, but couldn't a country conceivably uh, sort of legislate in the negative and say something like, you know, if data is stored within our borders, then no other country has the right to assert uh, jurisdiction over it. And, and wouldn't that then potentially come in direct conflict with, with you know, potentially a, what a different country might say? Yes, and and another real risk of uh, the, the answers to these questions about extraterritoriality is that because some countries may say data stored within our borders isn't acceptable isn't accessible to other countries, that's an extraterritorial exercise of jurisdiction that's impermissible. The, the risk that creates is that countries will say, "Okay, great. Well, company, you have to store data in our country as well. So anything you have on our citizens has to be copied and stored in in our country. So that that's what's called a data localization requirement. And certain countries have been thinking about that and considering right. those require those kinds of requirements. So yeah, that, that's another been... fear. And again. Sorry. Yeah. yeah I was there's, there's already, already been, been some of that. that. Yeah. So an, another uh, area of your work that, that I find really interesting is, is, uh, quote, digital Switzerland's unquote. So first of all, <laughs> where did that, where did that phrase come from? So the idea of digital Switzerland's, uh, Microsoft President Brad Smith, um, in a speech at, at the RSA conference in the, in 2017, called for the technology sector, the global technology sector, to become, quote, a trusted, neutral digital Switzerland. So he basically made an argument that technology companies need to protect their users from government attacks everywhere, no matter where which government may be attacking users, and not be complicit with governments in, in enabling government attacks on users. So that that's where the phrase comes from and it's got you know it's, it's maybe a little uh not fully specified in in the parlance of the companies so far but i've been doing some work to sort of figure out what that might mean and what we should think about it if you sort of unpack the, the phrase and, and and one observation one commentary you've written and now i'm quoting from from something you've written on, on that on that topic you wrote that digital switzerland's that, that, that term, quote, captures the role that U.S. technology companies have increasingly taken on with respect to cybersecurity uh, and privacy. They're acting like states and running their own foreign policies, close quote. And that's a, that's a really interesting observation. Can, can you explain what you mean by that when you're say, talking about you know, companies really acting in, what, in many ways in the cyber context like state actors? Yeah, so I think maybe the best way to think of it is that the, the companies and some of the some of this is technology companies and in certain circumstances it's more cybersecurity specific companies. But they're doing things that we think governments are typically the, the actors that do them. So one thing they're doing, they're they're challenging governments. So they're sort of tangling with governments in interesting ways. So for example, they are uh, calling out governments when governments launch cyber attacks famous example of this a number of years ago with Google. So Google alleged that uh, China had targeted human rights activists and had attempted to access the email accounts of Chinese human rights activists that were, that were Google accounts. And in response to this, uh, Google pulled out of China. So you can think of it as sort of akin to cutting off diplomatic relations, right? Google pulls out of the market. So one thing they're doing is they're, they're sort of tangling with governments in this way of uh, calling governments out when they see governments doing things that they don't think are acceptable. They're also doing things like engaging in crime control. So if you think about you know, typical government functions, crime control falls in, in that category and would, would sort of jump to the top of many people's lists. But 
one way that the, the companies are engaging in crime control is dealing with botnets. So botnets are networks of infected computers that can do all sorts of bad things like spam and uh, malware and, and distributed denial of service attacks. And Microsoft has actually pioneered uh, basically legal actions that allow them to take down botnet command and control infrastructure. And so Microsoft has done some of these by itself. It's done a number of them now in partnership with, uh, in particular, the FBI and U.S. law enforcement. But the companies are doing these things that we typically think of governments doing, and they've even moved into kind of the public policy space. So they've proposed things like uh, establishing an international agency that would do attribution of government-sponsored cyber attacks, and even perhaps cutting governments out of the loop and basically having this non-governmental entity accuse governments of, of cyber attacks. And, so there are, and all these different ways, they're, they're acting like governments. And so what, so, so, so that's, that's a really fascinating kind of uh, explanation. I guess the question I, one question I'd have is, does this conflict with the role and ability of governments to develop and carry out cyber policy? Uh, does it enhance it a bit of both? Does it depend on the country? I mean, how, how does, you know, because presumably governments, you know, obviously have a, have a, a continuing and, and, and very strong interest in, in cyber policy and, and being able to act on it. I think I would, I would say it complicates the, the scene for governments. So governments aren't, aren't now aren't the only actors. They have to account for the actions, not just of, uh, you know, other states, but also of these very powerful private companies. And in certain ways, the companies are getting ahead of government. So we see this with respect to attribution. There have been numerous instances where a private company will accuse a foreign government of a cyber attack long before, for example, the United States or the United Kingdom actually come out and officially attribute the attack. So this, that happened, probably the single best example of it, well, two, two examples. Um, Mandiant, now owned by FireEye, accused the Chinese government of intellectual property theft from U.S. companies well before the U.S. government was willing to name China as the culprit. And uh, CrowdStrike came out in June of 2016 and accused the Russian government of hacking the Democratic National Committee, again, months before any official U.S. government attribution of the attack. So certainly the, the presence of companies acting in these spaces is, is complicating things for governments. Now, in some circumstances, it may be helpful to the governments. In others, it, it's probably uh, a less welcome development from the government perspective. And most of the companies, correct me if I'm wrong, most of the companies that are powerful enough to, to take these steps are, are, are based in the United States, right? These are generally U.S. companies. And so I guess uh, the question is, do you see, you know, the balance of power, uh, for lack of a better phrase, between the commercial sector and governments as playing out differently in the U.S. as opposed to, say, in Europe, because because so many of these companies ha do happen to be based in the U.S. I do think it's different. Uh, I mean, the US, the, you're absolutely right that these, for now, are mostly U.S. companies. I'm not certain that it'll stay that way. I, you know, there are certain European companies you can see also being very powerful in particular spheres. Um, but the U.S. and Europe have taken a very different have taken very different approaches to the companies. Europe has a much more regulatory approach to to them. Um, we see that with the uh, the GDPR and also with the new Network and Information Security Directive. So it, Europe has a much more regulatory approach to them in general. Um, but that said, uh, Denmark has actually appointed a tech ambassador to reside in Silicon Valley. So. I don't know that, um, you know, in that, in that way, that's a European country that's actually sort of engaging with the companies as more of a, a state-like peer than as a regulatory subject. 
So I don't know that it's um, a particularly static situation where you see the um, Europe being sort of more regulatory or uh, having greater power over the companies in the U.S. Huh, that's that's really interesting. Let me move on, if I could, to uh, a question, a couple of questions on on the Talon manual. Uh, so you've looked quite extensively at that, uh, in, in particular the Talon manual 2.0, I guess, is, is the more recent iteration uh, and that addresses international law related to cyber operations. Would you be able to briefly explain what is the Talon manual? What, do we, what does that mean when we're talking about it and, and what it aims to accomplish? Sure. So the Talon manual uh, version 1.0 came out a couple of years ago. I believe it was published in 2013 or 20, probably 2013, I think. And it was drafted by a group of international experts on the laws of war. And they were non-governmental. A lot of them had sort of, they were sort of former government officials, uh, but they were acting there not in any official capacity, but they were experts in the laws of war, plus a bunch of academic experts as well. And what they set out to do was basically to write a, uh, the equivalent of kind of a restatement of how existing international laws on um, conduct of, of armed conflict apply to cyberspace. And there are you know, enormous numbers of fascinating questions about how exactly that, that happens. So they set out to do kind of a restatement project. The Talon Manual has, the first one had, I believe, 95 sort of black letter rules that set out the basic rules and then a bunch of commentary that flagged complicated issues. So the Talon, Talon Manual 2.0 set out to go beyond 1.0. So 1.0 was mostly focused tightly on sort of laws of war, uh, use in bellow and the use ad bellum and the international law parlance. Talon Manual 2.0 uh, stretched into some other subjects. So for example, the application of human rights, um, how jurisdictional principles apply to cyberspace, things that were a little bit beyond um, the laws of war. So it, it's basically, the aim was the same to be effectively a restatement project and to be a guide to the development of state practice on uh, how existing laws apply to cyberspace. Interesting. And, and how, how effective do you think the Talon Manual 2.0 will be, uh, you know, a- after all, isn't it the case that the entities most likely to violate cyber norms are by definition the same entities that aren't going to feel particularly constrained by a document like the Talon Manual? Well, I think one, one question is effective at what? So uh, it, I think it's both the Talon, Talon 1.0 and Talon 2.0 have been incredibly effective at spurring academic conversations and conversations outside governments about how, how law applies and what they got right and what they did in the commentary. So the question is effective at shaping state behavior, which I think you were, you were getting to about who's more likely to violate um, these laws. I don't think the Talon, the Talon manual itself is not going to be much of a restraint on state behavior, states that aren't going to be restrained by law, certainly aren't going to be restrained by the Talon manual. But part of the criticism um, that the Talon 1.0 came in for was that it was too Europe and U.S. centric. So the drafters actually uh, went far beyond the U.S. And, and Western Europe in consulting on the Talon 2.0. So they at least aired these um, positions with uh, representatives of governments and and people who are knowledgeable about government positions around the world. So they did a better job of sort of socializing Talon 2.0, um, even to you know, experts in states that I'm sure you're alluding to that were, were less likely to be in necessarily in compliance with uh, the legal rules. But in terms of 
you know, uh, how effective it's going to be at shaping state behavior, I think that maybe the way it's going to be most effective is in creating sort of shared expectations. I mean, it is a very expert uh, treatment of very complicated issues. So to the extent that it is the thing that people pull off the shelf when there's a question like this, it'll tend to shape behavior. And even if there are states that don't agree with what the Talent Manual says, if they view the Talent Manual as a pretty good proxy, for example, for what the United States would think or for what uh, the UK would think, then there's, there's something to be said for predictability. There's a lot of instability created by uncertainty about what the rules are. So to the extent that the Talent Manual is a proxy for how states will interpret particular actions or what legal frameworks they think apply, I think it could be really helpful. Now, there, there's some features of the Talent Manual 2.0 in particular that uh, I, I think they, they got a little ahead of themselves in trying to restate the law is too unsettled. And so there have been, um, you know, one recent example, the United Kingdom Attorney General gave a speech recently where he kind of repudiated one position that the Talon Manual takes. So it's not perfectly settled, but it is at least, it's providing a focal point for states to talk about, and it is uh, maybe lending a little bit more predictability to an unsettled area. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, would, would you agree that the Talon Manual 2.0 is probably the most comprehensive large-scale attempt to date at establishing global norms that would ex- relate to cyber and particularly the cyber cyber in the, in the use of, of warfare? I think that it's certainly the most comprehensive restatement and, and uh, treatment of how exactly the international law uh, laws of war apply to cyber. I mean, I think that's a little bit different. It's different from the efforts, for example, at the UN Group of Governmental Experts to establish norms of behavior that might go beyond uh, the law. So the Talent Manual is really focused on law. There are places where I think it, they, again, got a little bit ahead of themselves, but um, they're focused on law and the, the efforts of establishing cyber norms are a little bit different. And, and then if we talk about norms, uh, you know, I guess a, a similar question, how effective would, you know, let's say we had, you know, uh, a set of norms that everyone, at least in principle, agreed to regarding the use of cyber in, in the a warfare context, and, and you know, how, how effective would that be? And I guess the, to, to preface that, you know, I'll mention that, of course, that when discussing this, people often bring up the analogy of, of international agreements uh, not to use chemical weapons, with which, uh, with some notable exceptions, have often been followed. But I guess my question would be, is that the right analogy uh, or not for, for cyber warfare? So I don't think so. I mean, there there are kind of two different kinds of international agreements that regulate uh, arms, right? So the one you're mentioning on chemical weapons is a ban on their production, stockpile, and use. And that's really hard to translate to the cyber context because, among other reasons, it's, it's hard to even define what is a cyber weapon. And in addition to that, it's incredibly difficult to verify whether states have or don't have them, or if you know they signed on to a prohibition saying we'll destroy all the cyber weapons we have, you can't watch, you know, a cyber weapon burn or blow up or be destroyed. And so the verification process is very difficult, which leaves us sort of in the realm of the other kind of uh, the other type of way that international law regulates weapons, which is things like what the Talon Manual deals with. It's very basic principles that say they have to be used in a way that that can distinguish between civilian and military targets. They have to be used in a way that's proportional. So it's really those rules rather than an outright ban that I think is is the more likely way we'll see cyber um, dealt with going forward. Now, that's also an incredibly difficult road to, to sort of get to agreement on. And you know, I don't think we'll see a cyber-specific treaty going 
forward and anytime soon. But I think that the analogies to bans on particular kinds of weapons, which, as you say, have had some success as a matter of international law and um, you know, in practice, I don't think that works very well for cyber. Right, right. Okay. Well, one, uh, one question, another question I have is, you know, I was reading through your law review publications, uh, which are really interesting on these topics. And in one of the publications, uh, I'm going to, you suggested that, here's a quote, laws and regulations have fostered situations where giving up on cybersecurity, close quote, is something businesses and governments might be incentivized to do. I read that. I was like, "Wow, that sounds pretty grim, right? That that laws and regulations <laughs> are actually going to incentivize, you know, uh, people to or governments and businesses perhaps to, to maybe give up on it." So, can you explain that? And and what what is the impact on the broader cybersecurity environment if we have those kind of incentives in place? Absolutely. So it's not grim. It's actually a positive thing. Uh, so what I mean in the in the piece you're talking about by giving up on cybersecurity is basically accepting the the eventuality that attempts at, at cybersecurity are going to fail. Basically, that whatever defenses are set up are going to fail, and that you need to have some plan for what you do when they do. So, for example, uh, I talk in the paper about two different kinds of ways of uh, where you can give up on cybersecurity. One is by creating uh, low-tech redundancies. Maybe the the most salient example of this I can give is having voting machines that also produce, you can do electronic voting, but they produce paper audit trails, right? So paper is low tech redundancy, right. but having the backup of uh, paper ballots that can be audited and can be used to verify the electronic votes is a kind of giving up on cybersecurity. You hope you don't need it, but you assume that you might and you have the backup. Another kind of giving up on cybersecurity is, uh, that I talk about in the paper is sort of technological regression, which is basically giving up a uh, technological capability because of fears about cybersecurity failures. So one example of this, um, it's an unfortunate example, but one we've seen play out over and over is hospitals that are hit with ransomware attacks all of a sudden are, find themselves forced to go back to paper records. Now, that's something you could sort of train uh, employees for. It often causes a lot of chaos because you know, institutions aren't expecting to be hit with a ransomware attack. But being able to go back to paper records is a kind of uh, technological regression. Another example is in a couple of European countries, they had the capacity to electronically tabulate ballots in national elections. But instead of doing the electronic counting, they actually hand counted the ballots. So what I what I was talking about in this piece that you or the the part that you just quoted is maybe there should be circumstances where laws and regulations actually direct businesses or nudge businesses and other institutions toward sort of planning for the worst case. So giving up on cybersecurity in the sense of assuming that it'll fail and making sure that they have a plan B so that they can be resilient in the face of the nearly inevitable cyber attacks. But isn't it, I mean, but I guess the, the, when I hear that, I think, I mean, first of all, it's, it's, it's a super complex question, but I think that the voting case is in some sense almost a special case just because voting doesn't happen that often. And the amount of data that's generated by votes isn't just in terms of if you measured it in, you know, bytes isn't, isn't that large. And so it's actually not that impractical to have paper records. But, you know, if you took a right. look at sort of the, the typical way a normal company does business, you know, it would be, I think, as a practical matter, impossible to sort of, you know, print everything out at the end of every day or something, so, you know, so that if the... Yeah, and I, you know, I'm, I'm not envisioning something like that, but there could be circumstances where for, for, for especially high value information or something, you, you'd want to have a, and this isn't, this isn't just about paper, 
like another another example is that the U.S. Navy has um, started training, has resumed training their sailors to navigate um, by the stars because of fears about hacking of GPS. So it's not this isn't all about uh, you know creating paper backups, but even there, there might be certain high value items that you would want to keep a hard copy backup of. There's an example for, um, of a law firm that got caught up in one of these ransomware attacks, and they no longer distributed um, telephone directories in hard copy. So the only way to find somebody's phone number within the firm was to look it up on the computer, and all of a sudden they didn't have access to the computers. So afterwards, they started printing hard copy telephone directories, things like that. So it's not, this isn't about printing everything all the time. Clearly, nobody wants to go back to a world where we killed that many trees. Uh, but for certain sort of strategically important um, types of data, I do think that the sort of low-tech backup might be a, a way that we go. Yeah, in fact, one one ecosystem I'm um, somewhat familiar with is, as you may know, also where you see this is in cryptocurrencies, right? Where where the the phrase "cold storage" uh, is <laughs> right. is often often used, you know, to talk about you know quite literally taking the the data and and having it, you know, on a piece of paper. Uh, so that if the you know so that you know, nobody can hack into a, you know your computer and, and get the get the encryption keys to to, to steal it. And I, but I think your 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 point your broader point is 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 really right on, which is is that you know I I, I think I understand you you saying that you know it's naive to assume right that there won't be a cyber attack that's going to deny you access to some of your electronic records and and so. Um, common sense calls for being at least partially prepared, even if you can't obviously print everything out at the end of every day. Exactly. And part of, part of the issue that I explored in this piece a little bit was the fact that laws and regulations have been responsible for pushing businesses and other entities towards some of the electronic dependence that we currently see. So, for example, all the, most of the electronic voting machines that are now coming in for so much criticism because of the cybersecurity concerns were um, bought with federal, many of them were bought with federal funding in the wake of hanging chads in the 2000 election. So it was in response to, uh, you know, what turned out to be a low-tech concern about hanging chads that we moved toward this electronic dependency. And now only in the last couple of years has there really been a move to say, wait a minute, there are actually serious concerns of being fully dependent on, on purely electronic voting. We need to think about the, the backups. Right. Well, and so it's obviously the story is still being written on how to how to find uh, the balance uh, between those in two in some sense two competing approaches. Right. The the super convenient Absolutely. digital approach and the the super redundant, but then you know your efficiency grinds to a halt approach where everything is backed up. And obviously the the sweet spot has to be somewhere in some balanced place in the middle. But that's hard to know exactly where that is. Exactly. You're absolutely right. It's a search for the right balance and you don't want to end up too far at either end of the spectrum. Well, it's, it's really, really uh, appreciated and really appreciate the chance to, to get your perspectives uh, on the really interesting work you're doing in cyber across uh, many of its dimensions. So thank you so much for uh, being on the podcast uh, with us and uh, best of luck with your continued work in this area. Thanks very much for having me. It was a fun conversation. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution. For more podcasts and ideas from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org.